Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. Our guest today is David McIntyre, the founder and CEO of Cubby, an immersive personal space of sound and vision that uses personalized sensory regulation technology to regulate people with autism and sensory needs. Based in Ireland, David is the father of two autistic girls and also neurodivergent himself, diagnosed with dyslexia. In this conversation, we discuss autism awareness, acceptance, and services in Ireland, David's early fears of being diagnosed and how he came to accept his dyslexia, how autism presents differently for David's two daughters, the potential problem with using diagnoses as excuses, David's inspiration for developing Cubby, the four different types of sensory needs the Cubby team has identified, how occupational therapists use Cubby to regulate student sensory processing systems, what kinds of audiovisual media come with a Cubby experience, and tips for other parents of autistic children. In this episode, discover what's possible when sensory needs are met. To learn more about David McIntyre, please visit our show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Autism Podcast, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project, and join our online community on Mighty Networks at community.globalautismproject.org. And now I present you, David McIntyre. Hi, David. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Thanks for being here today. Hi, Rachel. How are you? Very well. Thank you. Let's start with some brief introductions. Sure. My name is David McIntyre. I'm the founder of Cubby. And we started this, I guess, to help people with neurodivergency, especially those with autism. All right. And we'll definitely get into the details of your company and the technology you've created. But first, I'd like to talk about your connection to autism. You have a daughter who is autistic, right? I have two daughters that are autistic. My youngest daughter, Ava, was diagnosed about seven years ago now. Actually, it was seven years ago. Time is flying by. And it's her that has probably prompted us developing this product and this service. So uh, my second daughter was only diagnosed last year. She's 13 now. So it kind of shows the gap that can be people can fall into. We knew she was mm-hmm. autistic, of course, but it took years to get her diagnosed. Okay, interesting. Is that just because of the level of services and awareness and acceptance where you are? It's the services really. So if it's preschool age, as in under five, the service is a lot quicker to respond. However, if they go into primary school, it can up, take up to three years. And then, of course, we weren't sure in that in the, when she started school initially, it took a couple of years for us to figure it out. And then, of course, COVID came along and then delayed it by a further two or three years. Hmm. So it's just been one of those things. Yeah. How would you describe the level of acceptance where you are in Ireland? It's an interesting question. I live this day in and day out. So there's a lot of awareness. 
there's not a lot of acceptance, truthfully. So the advocacy has worked very well in regard to telling people that this exists and autism is here. Most people seem to lean on the side of the extreme cases of autism or the people that are, are visually autistic, if you like, for the lack of better words, really. However, my daughters, you wouldn't think they were autistic until you were actually communicating with them or, or actually interacting with them. Schools are underfunded and are struggling to manage uh, the needs of these students. And that's a reality. A lot of schools don't even want these students in the first place, which is a big barrier and a big problem. So I say there's a lot of awareness, but there's not a lot of acceptance yet. Okay. Are there a lot of autistic adults speaking up about their experiences and, you know, kind of requesting more accommodations at work? so that there's more an inclusion in the community? Yes, there is this fragmented at the moment, I think. Personally, I think it's very fragmented. There's lots of small groups starting up, autistic-led, which I love, by the way. I think that's the future of, of, of what this should look like. However, it's very fragmented. There's lots of small groups, small pockets. And I think to really push this agenda, we need a consolidated approach and one voice that actually pushes the main agenda and makes change happen. That doesn't mean there isn't proactivity out there from government. It's just that it's very slow. Got it. And David, you are a neurodivergent yourself, right? Yes. Yeah, I'm dyslexic. Okay. And what was that like for you growing up? Did you know this about yourself or was it something you learned later in life? I'm going to say the Irish, the Irish trope is it's a funny story. But it's not really a funny story. Okay. Um, I was not diagnosed yet, uh, by the way. However, my parents were told I was dyslexic in uh, national school, which would be K-12 kind of age. And um, it was the first time I was aware that there was a, a real difference. I always knew that I wasn't the same as everybody else. However, I didn't understand what dyslexia was until I was much, much older. So my dyslexia was a big barrier in school. So for small behavioral issues, which I thought were small behavioral issues, and sometimes no behavioral issues, I was um, designated by some teachers as the problem child. I couldn't keep up with the other students, for instance. And what used to happen is I would be asked to leave the classroom at a very young age, actually. So I spent a lot of my time outside the classroom. In secondary school, I really started to struggle. And what happened there is I left very early. I left school at 15. The reason I haven't gone and got a diagnosis is because I was afraid, and I still am, I guess, at a certain level, that I might turn out that I'm actually just stupid instead of dyslexic, and that I'm fearful of that diagnosis, that I would fail to be something that I recognize myself as, if you like. I hope you understand. Yeah. What happened in school is, as you're getting learning supports, and as you're being brought out to the classroom for extracurricular work and stuff like that, you start to get stigmatized. And you start seeing yourself as different anyway. Your peers start to see you as different and you start to feel different. Looking back, it was very difficult as a young person to try to understand why that was happening. But my, with my maturity, it would seem that I also pulled back from the crowd as well. It wasn't just the, the, my peers pulling away from me. It was me actually protecting myself. And I got very shy and quiet, actually, for most of my life, would you believe? Until I was about 18 or 19, I decided to come out of my shell, which was an interesting experience because I suffer very much from anxiety, social anxiety. 
Um, I'm very f- afraid to ask questions in public or, or speak my mind in public. If, I'm afraid that I might be identified as being um, stupid or being a stupid question. And mm. so um, it took me a long time to be able to promote what we're doing here with Cubby, for instance. It, it was a very tough journey at the beginning, standing up in front of people and, and trying to explain what we're doing. I remember that I used to bring at least two ch- changes of shirts and a towel with me because I used to sweat continuously and, and, and profusely as I got up in front of people. Mm-hmm. So it's been a tough journey, but you know, at the same time, I do credit my dyslexia as being able to put ideas together quickly. I got a lot of great jobs in my past because of my dyslexia, especially in design and engineering where I, where I worked for many, many years. And I would accredit my dyslexia as the ability to design and create products very quickly and efficiently which was obviously beneficial to the people that I worked for. Mm-hmm. But dyslexia has a different uh, a connotation or uh, trait, which is nothing is ever good enough. And I would certainly fit into that where no matter what I do, it's never good enough. And I always say that I could have done better. And uh, it's a constant struggle of trying to achieve. That's a characteristic of dyslexia, you would say? It is, Yeah. Okay. It's a very interesting one. It might stem from the point of view that you see yourself as a failure as a young person. However, you're quite intelligent mm. and then you drive to prove yourself in some way. So no matter what I do, I try to be the best at it. And uh, it's not uh, conducive, I guess is the word, if that's the right word, to making friends because you're always competing and you're mm. very competitive. I would see myself as very, very competitive. Even in social gatherings, I would be competitive. Interesting. It is interesting, yes. Yeah. And, you know, this, what you said about not wanting to seek a diagnosis because of fear that you're not dyslexic and that instead you're, quote, stupid. Yes. It kind of reminds me of some conversations we've had on the podcast before when people are talking about these labels and like excusing people for certain things because of their diagnoses. So for example, with autism, someone might say, well, I don't have to do this or that, or, you know, it's because of my autism Yes. or something I just heard recently, a guest said that, you know, they were disclosing their autism to someone and that person said, oh, okay. I just thought you were quirky and kind of annoying. Yes. And then it's like, (laughs) well, is that any better? I mean, because... Where where do you draw the line of it being okay that someone is quirky because of their autism and that if they're not autistic, then they're just weird? Like, that's where I get a little bit lost. There's this kind of gray area. Well, it's actually interesting. My daughter, my youngest daughter, Ava, has been using I'm Autistic with her teachers for the last couple of years. And we've, we've actually been uh, negotiating our way out of that. Uh, she found it very difficult to um, read and write. Uh, she's actually coming on great now, but at seven and eight, it was a real struggle. And uh, she used I'm Autistic all the time as her fallback position. My oldest daughter, Sophie, had a different avoidance, if you like. She would apologize. She would say sorry to you 10 times in a sentence. It was incredible. So she was actually apologetic for being autistic, if you like. Mm. Uh, for not understanding where my youngest daughter was actually just saying, no, I'm autistic. I don't have to do that at all. (laughs) Uh So it's human nature, isn't it? It it really comes down to the person's nature. But people's attitude 
to be able to sit beside each other and see and, and think that they're quirky and maybe a little annoying. I think that's perfectly natural. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that as long as they are accepting and they're patient. It's very hard to change society overnight. And it's it's people with autism have been there forever. So there's always been annoying people. I'm one of them. It's just you have to get comfortable with that space and who you are. I heard that lately my, my nephew in America, he struggled through high school in America, very much so. He's now gone to college. And my brother said he's found his tribe. And, you know, maybe people are saying, well, that's not inclusion. But that young man has never been happier. He's got a club of, of similar minded people. They are all interested in the same things. And I guess everybody really finds their tribe some way, don't they? So whether you're into sports or you're into whatever you might be into, fishing, everybody seems to settle into people of, of their same elk and interest. So mm-hmm. acceptance, it comes back to acceptance, doesn't it? I think if you accept yourself, yeah. who cares what anybody else thinks about it? And it, I mean, it could be extended to, you know, I don't really like saying the word stupid. It sounds very insulting. But, you know, someone who's maybe not intelligent or not as smart as other people. So it's like, you know, let's say you you find you do an assessment and you're not dyslexic, but then you're ashamed for how you feel about yourself at that point. Like there's room for acceptance there also. Well, the word stupid was said to me over and over again. Mm-hmm. So that's where the word stupid, from my point of view, comes from. I was stupid at school. I was stupid at home. I was stupid, stupid. And don't get me wrong, my parents loved me to bits and done everything they could possibly. They never called me stupid, but my brother certainly did when they were teasing me. So it gets ingrained after a little while you start believing that and it becomes a real fear because, and you try to hide it because you're trying to fit in. So, but most people I'm finding, by the way, neurodivergent or neurotypical, they're all just trying to fit in. So right. the, that's where stupid comes from me. Autism from my daughter, not being able to read and write at eight years of age, she would have been called stupid uh, if she was in my, my age group when I uh, go to school. And now she's not stupid. Now she's autistic. And I think that's a step forward. Yeah. That's a step forward in understanding. That's a, She accepts who she is. Uh, we fortify that with her all the time and, and all my daughters, of course. But I think it's really up to us that are aware of neurodivergencies that we enforce and encourage the people with those problems, not problems, but with those differences, have some self-respect for themselves and some worth for themselves and strive forward with that. Because nobody else, it doesn't matter how much I think personally, how much we, we tell people that they must be uh, accepting of, of, of change and other people. What really people need to do is have some self-respect about themselves and their own personal goals and achievements and not really worry about what everybody else thinks about them. That would be the ideal world, wouldn't it? Yeah, right. Okay, David, let's talk about Cubby. Okay, I might be better at this bit. (laughs) So you said that it was your daughter who inspired you to develop the company. Yeah. So yeah, she was diagnosed at age two and a half, which was quite early. I'm a workaholic, so I was not involved in the diagnosis process. And uh, when we got the diagnosis, my first reaction was really to challenge the diagnosis because I really did understand what a diagnosis, it does change your worldview for your parents as well as the child involved. And I know I I said that at at a gathering lately, and there was a misconception of what I was saying. 
I wasn't saying that the, there was anything wrong with the child. There's nothing wrong with the child at all. But from a parent's point of view, everything media and everything sets expectations of what the perfect life should be. And of course, having a diagnosis in a family isn't part of that story until it actually happens. So we went to what they call an early bird training here, which is for parents to learn about autism and sensory processing. And um, we met a lot of different parents. And what we found was that a lot of these children are being excluded from the classroom. Schools are finding it hard to cope. And what's happening is that child outside the classroom for many hours in some cases. In other cases, to send them home. And another option for the schools was, here in Ireland anyway, was to enroll them in the morning and then send them home after morning recess. So I felt from my own background being excluded outside the door of the classroom that there had to be a better way of, of doing this. And um, a lot of things came together at one time, Rachel. This is a long story, but I'll make it as short as I can. I was a design manager and I was made redundant. So I had a couple of pounds put away. I had started my own design company and I was asked to design a sensory room for a local school. And I saw I had a few pounds. I was researching sensory rooms and my daughter was diagnosed autistic. So it was kind of the perfect marriage of three things, if you like. And uh, what I quickly done is started researching sensory rooms because it was hard to understand how they actually adapted to the different needs of the individual. And I guess that's how Cubby really was born. Okay. So tell us about Cubby. Like, can you describe exactly what it is? So Cubby is, um, it's a freestanding pod, if you like. It's, it's, it's quite big. It's, it can fit up to eight people in it. So it's not small. It's a blank canvas. There's nothing inside of it. And that's on purpose. And when the person co- goes to the Cubby, Cubby recognizes who's, who they are and changes the environment within inside of it to match the sensory needs of that individual. Mm-hmm. It's a very short break. It's, it's typically 10 minutes. It's timed for 5, 10 or 15 minutes. And the idea is that we deliver a sensory diet to the person that helps them regulate their senses so that they can go back and participate in their daily activities. And that's what it does. It works very, very well. It doesn't work for everybody. I just put that out there as well. We understand. However, we do measure the before and after. And uh, then we readjust the programs if they don't work. So the idea is that it's a sensorized service, if you like, that helps people sensory regulate quickly and go back to their daily activities. Okay. And can you talk about the different kinds of sensory needs? Sure. So when we were doing the research, Ayers struck us as, as, from an engineering point of view, she had identified four different types of sensory needs. There's the seeker, the bystander, the sensory, and the avoider. My daughter, by the way, is a bystander, my oldest daughter. She stands outside of the, of the group. And the reason for that, is, and a lot of autistic people do, is because body language is a barrier for her. And she doesn't understand what the game is or how to interact correctly. So she's always awkward, that awkward person in the group. My youngest daughter is uh, sensory, uh, which you believe she is. She can hear noise. It's incredible. She can hear a a tap dripping uh, four or five rooms away. And she'll tell you it's annoying her, for instance. And sun as well for light is a trigger for her. It can be painful. And people don't understand this, that actually the sensory inputs can be painful. The seeker 
is somebody that is understimulated and is seeking stimulus. And the avoider is the opposite. They're overstimulated and they're looking to cut out stimulus. And the idea of cubby was that if for no matter what sensory type we were, if you were an avoider, you could go into cubby and there'd be nothing in there. It would be a blank space, as I said. So that it would, the stimulus is, is deadened. Or if you were a seeker, you can have an audiovisual experience that actually meets your needs in the same space. So that's how it adjusts from one to another. Got it. So could you elaborate on the difference between sensory and avoider? So the seeker may be in the avoider. The sensory is a person that has a heightened sensory response to stimulus. So they, they can hear things very clearly that most of us can't do. So the way I explain it, okay. and it might be incorrect, but the way I explain it, it's like filtering. So if you imagine a dam where the water and one side of the dam uh, is the lake, is the sensory input, most of us can filter that down into a stream of information. But for a sensory person, that could be like a waterfall where there's lots of information coming in at one time. That has been challenged. Our thinking has been challenged lately where we're looking at a predicting brain. I don't know how you come across this lately, but the predicting brain is now saying that the body is predicting the future for a microsecond in front of you at all times and is asking the sensory, uh, your sensory body to double check that its prediction is correct. And what the theory is now is that the person with autism that prediction is always erroring and therefore their sensory stimulus is always active at the heightened activity, oh. which is, it's incredible when you think about it. Yeah. And that's the fight or freeze response that we see in some instances with autism, especially at younger ages. I find that as, as a person gets older, they're able to regulate their sensory needs more effectively. But when they're young, it's quite difficult. Mm -hmm. The seeker is very interesting as well. The understimulated, they... Our experience is showing that they are not able to stop seeking stimulus, even when they have the proper amount of stimulus, they keep seeking. And that's what most people, I believe, refer to as autism. They see that hyperactivity and they say, oh, that's autism or ADHD or it gets some label. But what's really happening is that person has is understimulated, looking for stimulus, is unable to stop that stimulus because it's it started. And what we're able to do with Cubby actually is give them what they seek which is stimulus, and then slowly bring them down to where they can uh, regulate themselves. Ah. So that's one of the things we're able to do. Right. So that's quite interesting. Yeah. And also another interesting thing we're seeing is rock and roll music is calming for some people. And we categorize all our media, all our, all our visuals, and all our music is categorized carefully. But rock and roll is counterintuitive. You think that calming music calms, but really it's not, it's not the truth. We, we're seeing that rock and roll music helps people regulate their sensory needs uh, and calm. Okay. Yeah. So just to clarify, avoider would be someone who is, doesn't want any input, but someone who's sensory could also be an avoider. Is that right? Oh, yes. They, they cross paths all the time. Okay. The initial thought process was these four categorizations. And, and when you're explaining it to people, it's, it's a good way of explaining it because it kind of departmentalism them. But... You can move anywhere in them four spaces anytime, uh, mm -hmm. it, which is incredible. And the idea of our product is that it adjusts with you as you change as well, which is a very strong point of our product at the moment. So, okay. yeah, you could be a sensory and an avoider at the same time. You could be a bystander, sensory and an avoider <laughs> or a seeker. It's not you're either one or the other. However, 
if your outward expression is seeking, for instance, is the high point and you're, you're becoming hyperactive because of that, we have a, a set of programs that will actually help you adjust. And same for the opposite end of the scale. So okay. we have people that's understimulated, for instance, in the morning, we give them a, a stimulating or energizing program that helps them regulate. And what we try to do is get them into a middle system where it's kind of the optimum uh, is the, where we try to get them so they're either overstimulated or understimulated. And we're trying to get you in the middle. So we have a set of programs that are created by our, our team of occupational therapists. We don't do any guesswork here. They create the experiences and we try to bring that person from uh, hypo up to regulated. But if they're hyper, we have a different set of programs that actually brings them down, if you like. And what we're finding is some of the calming programs were so good, they were sending people to sleep. We had to create a medium setting in the middle so that we did, we brought them down, but not too far down, or we brought them up, but not too far up, if you might understand that. Mm-hmm. So we're just trying to balance the person's regular, the sensory regulation, if you like, or, or mood. Some people might call it a mood or something, but it's not a mood, it's, it's, it's more than that. Mm-hmm. Got it. Okay. And so these are placed in schools, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So what would it look like if a student is maybe dysregulated? Would they ask to go to the cubby? Would the teacher say, hey, it's time, I think you need a cubby break? And then does the occupational therapist come in or is there like a set of programs they can choose from? Who makes the decisions here? So how cubby works for schools is um, in primary schools, when they buy a cubby, they get a portal. And this portal allows them to create a profile for each student. And that goes to our team of occupational therapists. And they create an experience based on that questionnaire that we get. There could be up to three or four programs per student. It depends on their needs. And once complete, they're automatically sent back to the cubby hub itself and are available to that student. In secondary schools, or if you like, um, high schools and beyond, they're different. We have two different ways. They, they can be ad hoc, as we say, or somebody can go up themselves and, and program it, or they can have a program made for them. It, it depends on the individual. What we're seeing in primary schools, we schedule the break so that we can preempt and prevent the sensory overloads happening. In secondary schools, we don't usually have a schedule, but we're developing a piece of software now that helps to identify that they need to have a sensory break. And it's quite successful in primary and secondary schools. The ad hoc is very interesting because some students here in Ireland and England don't actually present as being autistic. They won't tell you they're autistic. And they they use it ad hoc. But we're seeing neurotypical students now and teachers use it use it, use cubby for anxiety and stress as well. So in Ireland and in England, we have them in special schools, primary, secondary, and third level colleges. And we've just developed an app now that allows a person to bring their sensory profile with them from primary, secondary, and third level. So they can always have their own personalized programs, no matter which cubby they use. Okay. Wow. That's exciting. It is. We also have them in libraries and football stadiums here as well in Ireland. I don't know, did I tell you this? So the the idea of the app as well is that you're able to download your app. The parent is allowed to download the app or the, or the individual. And their sensory programs, they can now carry them anywhere. So the idea is actually so the freedom of movement, if you can imagine. If they're at the football match, they can put in their code and their sensory programs are there. If they're in the library, the same thing. 
And now if they fly from England to Ireland or Ireland to England, they can actually get the same programs, whether they're made in England or Ireland, it doesn't matter. So the idea is I could fly to America if there was a cubby over in America, I could put in my code and my sensory experiences would be there waiting for me. Ah, nice. Yeah. It's yeah. it's about how do we help people move freely in the community. Mm-hmm. I guess that's one of our mantras is, is community and participation. Um, mm-hmm. Inclusion is lovely, but participation is better. How do we get people participating? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned rock and roll. What are some other types of music and visuals that people can choose from? Oh, that's interesting. So there's at least 40 different visuals on the cubby at the moment. And that's growing all the time. Being a cloud-based platform, we're able to create new media and put it on cubbies. And we do that all the time. So we have nature. We have water is a big one. Waterfalls, would you believe, are very, very popular. Our most popular video is actually a turtle swimming in the ocean. Oh, It's incredible how many people use that one. The music is classical. We have country and western. <laughs> we have uh, pop. And uh, we have no heavy metal yet, but uh, we're, we have plans of putting really some, some uh, hard rock in there as well. So again, we don't allow people to put their own music on. And the reason for that it, at the moment is because we need to categorize the kind of music it is, how many beats per minute it has, et cetera, et cetera, so that we can actually use it in different ways. Uh-huh. So are you creating the music also? We are, we're planning to create our media and our music soon, yes. Oh, okay. And we're actually working with a, a lady here in Ireland that is into breathing techniques as well. So we want to have a whole suite of experiences for because people might just want to have that breathing experience. So we're, we know that that helps people regulate as well. Mm-hmm. Another thing we do with the videos is we try to lock it into a special interest. For instance, one of the questions on the profile is, is there any special interests? And you'd be surprised at what answers we get because they, they, they are, some of them are out there. But um for instance, if they like maths and science, we might create a space experience for them. And we created in the different categories that they need, for instance. So one of the great stories we had in Dublin, here in Ireland, was a young lady of 12. She told me that Cubby unscrambled her mind. And this yeah. was quite potent for me at the time because my daughter, Ava, had said something very similar to me only a week before. And she said that her experience was uh, all about space. And of course, I didn't know this, so it was quite a surprise. We have a lot of these out there at the moment. And I said, well, that's great. I said, why do you like the space one? And she said, well, I want to be an astronaut when I grow up. And I just thought, this is incredible. Isn't this an incredible story? And I talked to her mother afterwards. And I said, oh, I hear uh, the young lady was telling me all about her experience. And she said, she comes home every evening now and she can do her homework. And she could never do that before. Copy was put in. Oh. And I just hope it'd be great in 20 years time, maybe to go back and see, did that girl ever succeed in her <laughs> dream? Because that would be a, a real good story to tell about how Cubby had impacted her life. Oh, yeah. Um, and that's the impact we make. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. So is there some kind of portable version where people can have it at home? No, not yet. I'm afraid we made the terrible mistake of trying to change the education system first. And uh, we still haven't finished that project we have over a hundred cubbies, which you believe, uh, as of last week in Ireland, which was uh, wow. It's a long way from where we started in the shed here in Mayo. This year so far, we have delivered forty thousand sensory breaks in the schools in Ireland, and we know that out of those forty thousand, 
the OT programs within there, they were 90% accurate. For the 10% that weren't working, we created new experiences. And so now we know that the OT sensory break is three times more effective than if you just use Cubby as a sensory space, mm. uh, which is an incredible piece of innovation if you can think about it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that what we're trying to do now is is move into the business sector, which is incredible that we're starting to see people from from some large organizations come to us and talk about how they can actually hire more neurodivergent people, which we know is a big problem as well. Oh yes, that is so exciting. It is. Actually. I just kind of got the chills thinking about the possibilities there. Yes. Well, I'm going to tell you, well, the whole reason Cobby was created the way it was, was to try to reduce stigma around having an intervention like a sensory break. And I think we've succeeded that in some levels with neurotypical people using it for stress and anxiety. That's exciting in itself. And we were approached by a couple of multinational companies here in Ireland and I, I really thought it was a box ticking exercise on their part. You know, there is a lot of, of, of people looking at uh, neurodiversity, how they're more inclusive, et cetera, et cetera, not only for neurodivergent people, but for females and different minorities. And I kind of, tongue in cheek, kind of said, okay, I'll talk to you guys. However, th- this was a neurodivergent team. Dr. Nazim was her name. I, I won't give away the company, but if she hears this, she'll know who she is. Her whole ethos was how do we attract neurodivergent people to this company? And they actually seen Cobby as a, a tool because of its connectivity to the different levels of education, as a tool of attracting people and supporting people with neurodivergency within the workplace, which I thought was incredible. And part of the app, app that we developed allows people to get the OT program without telling the company they have autism or neurodivergency. Mm-hmm. So they can download the free app they can get an OT program. They can now get that break in the workplace. It'll tell them when to take the break. It'll set it up for them. And our idea would be that they would be able to then bring that anywhere they go afterwards. So whether they're in the community, sports stadiums or wherever. And I think that could be a powerful tool for people with neurodivergencies in the workplace. Yeah, absolutely. Well, David, to wrap up here, I'd like to close with one last question. What advice would you give to other parents of autistic children? You know, I'm lucky. I'm lucky. My, my daughters are in mainstream school. They're thriving and they're finding their way. For a lot of parents, they don't have that. It can be very, very difficult. And a lot of them are locked in. And um, I hope that we can help. That's what this, this whole thing was about. I hope that we can unlock and help these people maybe move freer in their communities advice don't stop fighting just don't stop fighting everybody has different levels of of need and some people are under a lot of pressure as i said i'm quite lucky we meet a lot of parents that are tired and and washed out and they're exhausted they're not getting the help they need and they're not giving up but it's exhausting so i would say keep fighting keep fighting as much as you can and uh, these young people they'll they'll shine if you can keep at it All right. Okay. Well, you know, I hope to see Cubby all over the world someday. Do you have any in in the U.S. now? No, not yet. We've been getting inquiries from the U.S., would you believe? They've been finding us somehow. 
We've had Boston University, our college. They heard about us. They're quite interested in it. Okay. We've called a couple of schools, uh, one in Florida, uh, one in New York. We have a, a Canadian school also very interested. They found us by accident, I think. I think they were looking up the baseball team and found us by mistake. <laughs> but that's all right. <laughs> that wasn't on purpose, but we'll take it. No, we do plan to get to America and we plan to get there soon, actually. Okay. It's going to be some some adventure over there as well. So we just haven't figured out how to do it all yet. If anybody has any good ideas, I'd be more than happy to discuss it. Got that's it. for sure. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we'll put a link to your website in our show notes so that people can look more into what you're offering and if they're interested in you know, installing it in their schools or their school districts. Sure. Yeah, I know. Thanks, Rachel, for this great opportunity to tell you about what we're doing. It's a big idea, I know, and it's a sensitive area. Uh, we're very aware of that. So mm. uh, people should feel free to reach out and we'll try our best if they, if they have any questions to answer what they have to ask or say. Good or bad, we don't mind. All right. It's very interesting what you're what you've created here and you know thank you for opening up in the beginning about your experiences and what that was like for you. Yeah, I only tell my counselor them kind of things usually, but okay. um what I'm finding is that the more people we speak to and the more people I meet with with neurodiversity like for instance I'll tell you a quick story before you go. Yeah. I was asked to do a, a talk a couple of months ago and I try not to, to take things too seriously because I, I find that some people, you know, getting fortified in an opinion can be the wrong thing sometimes. Anyway, I'm a bit lighthearted, as you can probably see. And I just told them about an experience at work where I would go into a meeting and straight away, my dyslexic mind would jump to the, the solution to the problem. I mean, within five minutes, I'd have the solution. And I tell everybody in the room, I go, here's my solution. Okay. And expect everybody to go, oh my God, well done, David. Well, that's brilliant. Of course, the opposite happened. Everybody talked for another hour, another hour and a half. And then somebody else, some other engineer would come up with the exact same solution I gave an hour ago and they would get the credit for it. And it was the most frustrating mm. thing in my life. And I thought it was just me. And I said this to this maybe 70 people that in the room and every one of them, I mean, it became the focal topic of the whole conference about people's ideas being stolen Wow! in meetings. And I was kind of going, what have I just stepped upon here? So it's seemingly very, very common thing to happen that the neurotypical mind can't, they don't process the information as quickly or something as the neurodivergent mind. And this is, is the real strength of the neurodivergent mind. We can cut to the chase. <laughs> uh -huh. We're not 100% accurate, but I tell you, I bet you we're 70% accurate with the solution each time. So can you imagine all the hours we could save in meetings <laughs> if, if people just listened to the solution first and got on with it? Right, so, right. It's incredible. I mean, people were coming up to me afterwards talking about it. It was a whole thing. Wow. Okay. Ah, I couldn't believe it. Yeah. So maybe it's a question you could be asking. Right. But going forward, do you ever go to a meeting and you tell them the solution and then nobody takes any heed until an hour later, uh -huh. somebody else says it? <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, people don't believe things until they come out of their own mouth sometimes. So, Exactly. That can happen too, by the way. Yeah. That's maybe another story, but yeah. <laughs> well, we've all had that too. Yeah. All right, David. Well, this has been a pleasure speaking with you today. Okay. Well, thank you so much. 
Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. Regulating sensory needs is essential when setting students up for successful learning. A decrease in stress and anxiety leads to happier and calmer students who are more likely to engage with their teachers and classmates. Cubby is changing what it means to take a sensory break. Personally, I would love to step into one of Cubby's immersive spaces if I'm ever feeling overwhelmed during my workday. Just from hearing David talk about it, I can imagine the positive effects it would have on my mood and attention span. Like David, are you a family member or professional wanting to support your autistic loved one or student? Or are you an autistic self-advocate willing to share your experiences and educate others? Whatever your role related to autism is, you can join our online global autism community to connect and collaborate with people from all over the world. Sign up today at community.globalautismproject.org. Let's work together to transform how the world relates to autism. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at autismknowsnoborders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate the show and leave a review. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.